faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To uh, show you that uh, kind of anti-Catholicism hasn't gone away, uh, when we first moved, my late wife and I, we didn't have any children yet. We had to adopt our children. Uh, moved to Memphis in the fall of 1978. The medical center of the University of Tennessee is in Memphis, which has always been the biggest city in the state. And Knoxville is where the state university is. It's 350 miles east. Um, a few months after we got there, maybe November 78 or January 79, somewhere around there, I was in the, the mall, which was the closest mall to where we were living. And I, that was when Sears was a robust retailer. They had a Sears at one end, one of the anchor stores of the mall. And I was there were a couple of young college students about your age, the, the people here, uh, you know, the people over there. Your age, your age. And they were, a couple of guys were talking and the one guy asked the other one, what happened to that cute Catholic girl that you were dating? And he said, it was the most blessed thing. She became a Christian last night. She was baptized in my Baptist church. She became a Christian last night. This is 1979 here. You thought you... You, you, you would, might have heard that from Luther. Probably not, actually, but you would have heard that from people four or five hundred years ago, but this is 1979. And they had a Christian Brothers College in Memphis, but uh, which had the best engineering program in the this, in this city. Uh, but no, it hasn't gone away. You know, it's still out there. Now, back to the subject at hand. In April of 1970, Time magazine reported that Bernard Larkin, quote, is considered by many intellectuals to be the finest philosophic thinker of the 20th century, end quote. He's like Dietrich von Hildebrandt. He's a master, but he's unknown. As one who had the great privilege to study with him when he was Stillman Professor of Roman Catholic Studies at Harvard. I readily agree with this assessment. Heidegger and possibly Hildebrand are the only other philosophers of the 20th century I would put on the same level. It was 1972. I was applying to and had just been accepted to the doctoral program at Harvard, which I will, and I told this in the talk on Mormonism, I will be forever grateful that the Holy Spirit came to me and said I needed to be at Harvard, even when I could have been at other fine schools 
and had my way paid entirely. And I was only accepted at Harvard for the master's program, in which case I would have to reapply for the doctoral program. It was the spring of 1970. I was just a second year theology student applying and getting accepted to the doctoral program. And I talked my way into Lonergan's seminar on Christology. He was the most brilliant man I ever knew. My mentor at Harvard would have been second. My mentor wasn't a Catholic, but he could have been, should have been. He's still alive. I'll get him. Uh, you don't make many friends on the Harvard tenured faculty if you're on the board of Americans United for Life for 25 years. You don't make a lot of friends when you take time out from revising and publishing a second edition of your master work, five, 600 pages on the moral life, when you take time out of putting out the second edition to write two books calling Dr. Kevorkian a murderer, which he did. But I gave my paper to the seminar on German liberal Christology and using Lonergan's uh, philosophy and theology to criticize the lack of a metaphysics in liberal Christology. And Lonergan was a gentle giant. He asked like two questions, and then the, the other students asked more because they wanted to show that they were better than I was. They may have been, I don't know. But he asked a couple of questions, but they went right to the heart of it. And I felt I was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then after the seminar, he came up to me and shook my hand and said, that was a very good paper, Mr. Sherlock. It went up like this. <laughs> In this short paper, I want to introduce you to one very short part of Lonergan's thinking about human beings with the tools of reason alone can come to knowledge of the existence and some of the character of God. At the outset, let me reject three mischaracterizations of Lonergan. First is the claim that Lonergan is simply a philosopher who had little knowledge of theology or interest in the connection of philosophy and theology. This thinking overlooks the fact that while he was at the Gregorian, he wrote 1,400 pages in Latin on the Trinity and Christology. Gone are the days when I think of uh, students at the Gregorian, even the Gregorian could study in Latin. Moreover, his doctoral dissertation at Gregorian was on the concept of operative grace in Aquinas. Secondly, it is often claimed that Lonergan is merely a transcendental Thomist, like Marischal and Rahner. Lonergan himself did not think that this title or label was helpful in understanding his attentions, especially his masterwork, Insight. More importantly, I believe that this framework represents a fundamental misreading of Lonergan. Briefly, I can make the point thus. 
There are, I believe, three ways in which Catholic philosophers and theologians have reacted to the heritage of Kant. First, our traditional Thomists, who believe that Kant is disastrously wrong. He is. As such, we do not need to engage Kant, or really the Kantian heritage that ends in a rejection of any real connection between metaphysics and theology. I, for one, and Larkin, did not think that this, quote, head in the sand and hope it goes away move is helpful. Ignoring modernity does not make modernity go away. It only leaves us unable to answer the claims of modern thinkers. The second move holds that Kant is generally right about the end of real metaphysics. As such, we must then do theology without much help from philosophy. This will be controversial, but I could defend it. This, I believe, is, the, is at the core of Rahner's thought and of his popularity in Catholic theology. To be perfectly honest, metaphysics, particularly combined with the study of Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, and Aquinas as a preliminary to theology, is hard work. Defending, deepening, and enriching theology with the tools and craft of reason is more difficult than just articulating the faith. Confessing that we believe in the Trinity and then using the analogy of human beings to human beings of reason, will, and appetite is relatively simple. Augustine's De Trinitate is much more difficult and a much more rewarding study, but it's hard work. This move of dismissing philosophy in the context of theology makes theology appear simple and not up to the task of rationally defending its claims in the babble of modernity. This has never been the Catholic tradition, and it should not be so now. Many people in moral theology think they can do moral theology without a rich grounding in philosophy. Unfortunately, it shows, and it leads students and lay people astray. Finally, there is the third way. Take seriously the claims of Kant. Start with examining the phenomenology of human existence, especially human knowing but do not remain content with the conclusions of the anti-metaphysicians. Begin inquiry with an examination of human knowing, but then show how knowing unfolds into a metaphysics of truth. This is Lonergan's path. It is more difficult, but more rewarding than the alternatives. Thus, I believe that referring to Lonergan as a transcendental Thomist after the fashion of Marichal and Rahner is highly misleading. The third misunderstanding of Lonergan is that he is fundamentally just interested in narrow issues of Catholic theology and some philosophy connected thereto. This view simply doesn't square with the facts of his career or with the content of insight. Insight is addressed to all human beings as such, especially to all thinking beings, knowers we shall call them. There are significantly more references to Kant than to Aquinas and Aristotle almost doubles either one of them. Furthermore, in insight. Furthermore, the sort of knowing that Lonergan concentrates on in the first part of the work is physics and mathematics, in which he was an expert of all the fields of human knowing that pride themselves on being perfectly, quote, objective, unquote, for all rational persons. These fields are surely 
at the head of the list. There are, I believe, three arguments, three lines of argument by which philosophers have tried to show that with purely natural reason, human beings can know the existence of God. One of these arguments seems to me and many others, such as St. Thomas, to be wrong. The second way is sound, but does not get us very far in a positive appreciation of God. The third line of argument gets us much forward toward a God that we can actually revere, but I believe that it can only do so if we begin with a line of inquiry developed by Lonergan. Essentially, argument three requires argument four, which comes from Lonergan, as its foundation. The first argument is Anselm's celebrated argument. I shall not review it here except to say that I agree with Aquinas. The argument is unsound because the existence of God is not self-evident to all rational persons. There are many intelligent persons who understand perfectly well what they mean when they deny the existence of God, yet they still deny the existence of God. Aquinas makes that argument. And he makes it in such a way that you can't fail to note that it's Anselm he's talking about, because he uses exactly Anselm's phrasing, you know, that being then which nothing greater exists. The second argument is the cosmologic argument in its various formulations. While I agree with the conclusion, we should remember that these arguments start with the recognition that we are finite, contingent creatures. Thus, we require that creation must have a creator. True enough. But this conclusion is compatible with an intelligent creator or with an extreme deism that holds that a demiurge started the universe and either does not or cannot care for creation any further. Even on the best versions of this argument, we start with our finitude, our limits, and then suppose that we can reason to knowledge of the infinite and unlimited. Descartes' version is even more problematic. What I said, Aquinas, I think Aquinas' cosmological arguments are absolutely correct. They don't get you very far in a God you can worship or revere. Descartes' version is even more problematic. He starts with the ego, absent anything else in the world. From this, he appears to suppose that from this one thing, there must be a creator. Yet when he describes the ego, he starts by describing this thing as the thing that, quote, doubts, unquote. The existence of God is thus argued from the starting point of human doubt. The problems with Descartes' epistemological egoism are well known and do not need to be noted here. However, to reach truth out of doubt is quite a reach. The third line of argument is ostensibly more promising. The versions of the argument for design seem to get us much further toward God. There are, I believe, two broad <coughs> versions of this argument. They are both reasonable and fruitful. The second version, however, is more complete than the first. The first version is what I shall call complexity design. This line of argument recognizes that there are things in the world that are so complex that unintelligent natural processes simply could not have brought these things into being. An emeritus colleague of mine in plant genetics published a wonderful example of this journal, of this in the journal Nature in 1970. I don't know whether Nature would accept the same article today, given the contentious character of these kinds of arguments. He argued from work with plants and fruit flies that we know the rate of genetic change in nature. From this, we can calculate the time required to evolve from a single-celled organism to much more complex beings like human beings. 
in the random Darwinian method. Then we can compare this figure to the time the planetary astronomers say that we have from the beginning of the solar system. The numbers are not even close. Of course, the most well-known version of this argument is the famous story of the watch and watchmaker. These sorts of arguments from complexity are certainly sound as far as they go. We should remember, though, that the native person, even with his limited background knowledge, recognizes the watch as designed because he compares it to rocks and soil which do not, to him, appear complex. This point does not render the recognition of complexity, complexity unfruitful, but it does render this recognition incomplete as far as an argument for God. The famous story of the scientist who uh, tells God, God, we don't need you anymore. We can make life. And then God says, you can. Tell me how. And the scientist says, well, you take some dirt. And God says, wait a minute, get your own dirt. The second cosmic design argument looks at design in the beginning of creation and throughout what we now recognize as the extraordinary immensity of creation. It gets bigger every time the scientists make an estimate. And when scripture talks about worlds without number, that's just about what the scientists are saying the size of the universe is. Numbers so big that we cannot comprehend them in terms of the number of galaxies and the, and the average number of stars per galaxy. The arguments about fine-tuning at the beginning of creation show that the parameters within which the created world emerged from the Big Bang are so precise that design must be involved. Second, as Richard Swinburne has so richly argued, the fact that all of creation operates on the basis of four fundamental laws is much better explained by the existence of an intelligent agent at creation than by any other alternative. Lonergan does not deny either the cosmological or design arguments, but he goes deeper and in a direction that is different. If we focus on the design argument, Lonergan asks us to consider what is presupposed and mostly overlooked in such an argument, there is a knower and a known, irrespective of how we explain the coming to be of the knower and the object or event the knower comes to know, the knower grasps it in his consciousness, understands what he has grasped, and judges the completeness of his understanding. Before the knower can reason from the existence of design to the necessity of a transcendent design, the knower must recognize both an object external to him and an, an object that demonstrates a pattern that could not, as far as we know, come into being with the processes of nature alone. The design argument requires as a presupposition a knower who judges design, reasons to the existence of a designer, and judges this reasoning to be correct. That is, he first judges design, he reasons to the existence of a designer, and three, he judges this reasoning to be correct. The design argument itself requires more than just, quote unquote, taking a look. We must understand what we have looked at and then judged our understanding to be correct. Understanding 
and judging go beyond. That is, they transcend the look. They are first steps toward transcendence as such. Human beings go beyond what is immediately present to reflect on the meaning of what is more than present. Meaning is not just the result of the look or the glance. It transcends the look on the way to knowing. In this way, the human being becomes a knower, not just an experiencer or a looker. Following Aristotle, this is the natural desire that marks human beings as a distinctive part of creation. The desire is coeval with human nature. This aspiration for truth goes beyond facticity and points to human nature as striving for transcendence of our givenness. This striving for knowledge, this desire to know, is unrestricted. As such, the desire at least points to an unrestricted, shall we say, eternal and infinite source of knowledge that goes beyond any particular knower, any, partic any specific or particular moment of knowing, and any individual instance of the known. Lonergan starts with what must be involved when the knowing subject comes to know. He does not reject the study of the known or merely experienced. However, we grasp our own knowing first and then the reality and depth of the known. Our knowing, which we all recognizes, recognize, presupposes both human persons as intelligent knowers and an intelligible world external to us. This world transcends the world of the look. Animals look, but they do not grasp and judge. They recognize, but they do not know. Lonergan begins his magnum opus, Insight, with an example of a knowing subject that everyone recognizes as coming to know in a moment of insight that uses but transcends simple experience. Archimedes, Eureka moment in the baths at Syracuse. And whether the story is actually true, it explains something. No one seriously denies that Archimedes had a grasp of truth. But the knower's grasp of truth requires a look that leads to a judgment of intelligible and eternal truth. The truth that Archimedes grasped and judged in that eureka moment of insight was true billions of years ago, and it will be true billions of years hence on any planet where there is gravity, which means any planet in existence. Knowing as distinct from looking or experiencing is grasping the universal in the particular in a manner similar to Aristotle's method of abstraction. In fact, of all previous thinkers, Aristotle dominates insight. Knowing thus requires understanding a particular experience as exemplary of the universal. Then the knower must judge that his initial understanding is actually a grasp of truth. Insight thus takes place 
only within an ambit of universal truth, that only a knower who can transcend his or her moment of looking can come to grasp and understand and realize. Insight is thus first something that happens in the intellect of the knower. The, this eureka moment, however, like that of its archetype of Archimedes, is not only a moment. It is a moment, yes, but a moment where the human intellect transcends the moment and points itself toward the universal, or shall we say, the eternal. It is a moment where the non-spatial, non-temporal is recognized as exemplified in the temporal and spatial, that is, in creation. For truth to be intelligible thus requires an intelligent knower and an intelligible known external to the knowing subject. The intelligibility of the world presupposing any knowing leads inherently to an ambit of truth that gathers the knower and the known while transcending them both. This ambit must be rooted in an intelligent source that goes beyond but infuses the world of experience. Starting not with the object of knowing, but with the knowing subject, Lonergan has taken a decisive turn from both the unsophisticated Thomism of the early 20th century and the Kantianism against which both the Thomists and the phenomenologists were rightly rebelling. Thus, Lonergan argues that the process of knowing begins with that begins with insight shows decisively the reality of a God who is more than a first mover or cause. <coughs> this God must be a God of truth, but since, which is the object of knowledge. But since truth for human persons must be eternally unfolding, this God must be the God that shows eternal care for his creation so that we can always know and then proceed to the next step of knowing, because knowing is a process that unfolds step by step. This God must be a God that shows eternal care for his creation, especially his greatest creation, the human person. Thus, this God is a God more than a first cause. He is an eternal care of his creation. He is more than simply a designer who set it up and then went away and left it. He is an intelligent person toward which our knowing can constantly unfold. I think that is Lonergan's it's an introduction to the way in which Lonergan starts with the phenomenology of what happens in the knowing subject as the knowing subject comes to know and proceeds in a way compatible with, but I think larger than that found in Aristotle or Aquinas. Thank you. FaithandReason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.